All right, well, here we are. We have recently started a, um, a study in the book of Colossians. And if you're here with us for the first time today, you haven't missed much. We are in our second week of that study. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in the first chapter looking at verse three through eight today. If you don't have a Bible, then down the middle aisle of seats underneath are a couple stacks of Bibles. We would love you for you to use that during your um, worship with us today. Uh, more than just using it, you can take that Bible with you as a gift from us to you. Um, Colossians is in the New Testament. It's going to be on the right side of your Bible, actually towards the, the end. I don't have the same Bible that you are using, but I'm around 980. So that means it'll be in the thousands, the low six. Actually, there you go. 638. Finer print. Unfortunately, I'm using my my bifocals here. So Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight. We're going to read these verses out loud together. You can read along in your Bible on your app or you can cheat and read aloud as you see the words on the screen. Let's read together. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we uh, honor your word today. We thank you that you give us opportunity to not just read it, but to say it out loud. And we pray that the hearing and the reading of your word would bless us, bless our minds, our hearts, uh, bless us through and through that we might understand. But more than that, we might take heed to what you have written to us. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church, for the saints coming together and worshiping today. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us. Even as Paul unfolds this idea of, of thanksgiving and prayer to God for this group of people that he had never even met. Uh, Lord, we pray that for those of us who are familiar with this passage, we would see something for us specifically to help us to, to trust, to hope, to believe more in the gospel, really to be, believe more in Jesus today. God, we pray that you would change us in the hearing of your word. And we pray this all in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. And amen. All right. So a Colossians is an epistle, Bible word for for letter. And much like a letter that you would write, you start with a greeting, dear Harry, dear Susie. And then you may add some other parts that, uh, of just simple words in saying hello to a person and then you dive into that letter talking about whatever you want to talk about with them. And Paul really, after the, the greeting of saying hello to the Colossians and introducing himself to this group of people that he had never met, dives in. And in this part of the letter that we're unpacking today, Paul uses a very familiar way of expressing Thanks to those churches that he writes. And this really is what he's doing just in, in these verses. He's thanking God for them and letting them um, hear how he articulates that thanks to God and 
and also of prayer. In verse three, uh, he says really two things. He's thanking God and he's praying. He's, he's, he's telling them, I thank God and I pray for you whenever I think about you. And in these days, he would have prayed at least three times a day, morning, noon, afternoon. But being Paul, the, you know, I, we can't call him a super Christian. He was, a, you know, he was just a man just after God. Um, we can assume that Paul was was thinking about praying for the people under his care of which of whom he was a shepherd often. In verse three, he's doing two things. He's doing two things here. He's showing gratitude for the Colossians in the report of their spiritual progress brought to him from a guy named Epaphras. We read about Epaphras in verse seven. And Paul says some pretty, pretty significant kind of special things about Epaphras. Look at verse seven. I'm not going to have it on the screen. You're going to have to look down at your Bible. He says that you learn some things from Epaphras. That means he's a teacher of sorts. He calls Epaphras a a beloved fellow servant, which means he was a Christian. In verse eight, he continues. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he says, Epaphras, this guy that they knew has made known to us. Paul said Paul, meaning me and Timothy and my cohort, your love in the spirit. And then when we turn to chapter four, verse 12, we aren't going to do that. Paul says that this guy, Epaphras, has actually suffered on your behalf. He's not just a good guy, a teacher, fellow servant. He's suffered in prayer and in many ways on your behalf. What the church historians tell us is that Epaphras came to faith under Paul's ministry. Paul spent three years in Ephesus and Epaphras, being a Gentile, had gone to Ephesus and had um, been exposed to the good news of Jesus, the gospel through Paul's ministry. And he was so impacted by what he heard of the message of the gospel that he came back to his own hometown. That's why it says he's one. Paul says he's one of you. He was a, Col- a Colossian himself. And so Epaphras came, comes back to Colossae and he is given credit for being an evangelist to not only the, the city of Colossae, but this whole Lycos River Valley area, Hierapolis, Laodicea. Um, he was so impassioned by the gospel that he was evangelist to, to this whole area. So he's a pretty cool dude. I mean, he's a special dude. And that would, you know, it beckons us to think about how we came to faith. Who is it? Who was it that was instrumental in, in bringing us to faith? Who are the Epaphrases in your life? But more than that, who are you being an Epaphras to right now? Are you? Are you so impacted by the message of the gospel that you're going that you feel compelled to go and tell someone else in your hometown, where you live, your neighborhood, where you work, about this Jesus that he had learned about. And so Paul is doing two things. He's showing gratitude for the Colossians in the report of their spiritual progress brought to them by Epaphras. And the second thing is he, I mean, this, his, 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 his thanksgiving turns into praise. And he lets them in on the prayer that he's praying before God as he thinks about them. And from this, we get a couple things. Firstly, when we pray, we're supposed to give thanksgiving and prayer to God. You know, I mean, isn't it just too easy? I was thinking about it this morning as I was I woke up and usually on my, my Sunday morning ritual is I get up out of bed and I, pr- I, I pray, I intercede for us. As as we're worshiping in the morning and I really want to go to asking God stuff. It's like, God, I need you to do this and this and this and this. And I got a whole long list of things I need God to do for me. On your behalf, but also for you and opening your ears to what he would have 
for you today. And and honestly, it's a second thought for me just to just to thank God just for waking me up, airing my lungs, having a house roof over my head, the family that loves me despite my sin. We got to we got to thank God and praise him just for the simple things in life. Don't forget to do that. And then the, the, the question that comes to my mind is, is this. Who and what are you thankful to God for as you pray? Are you thankful and, and prayerful to God about something in your life? Is there is there anything? I had a couple reasons um, that that as I was studying this passage, that this idea uh, of reflecting on being thankful and thanksgiving leading to to prayer and praise <clears throat> to God. It just happened this week. Uh, we were visited by a friend of ours from um, North Carolina. His friend was going to be a part of our core group. Didn't turn out to, to work out. They were able to come with us. But she has been uh, a, a consistent, you know, prayer, prayer for us, but also uh, a financial steward toward us, just helping us in and what the transit has become just faithful and consistent in in thinking about us, caring about us and, and, and giving. And the question that I'm asked a lot by people, by you all, but also by people who know that I'm planning a church is, you know, how's it going? You know, give, give me some, you know, how's the church going? What are y'all doing? And I, I know I, I answer that question a lot. And so I have the long answer. I got the, the canned answer. I, I do. Yeah, I do. And I always say, well, you know, church is going good. Uh, I say, you know, then I then I I don't want to make it sound like this is easy. I say, you know, church planning is hard. It's one of the hardest things that I've done in my life. Harder than Ranger School, you know, as as hard as that was. And I did. I I got recycled three times at Ranger School. Church planning, seriously. So, (laughs) da da. Church planning is harder than Ranger School, folks. For those of you who've gone through it, probably harder than I even Special Forces, but it's got to be harder than that too. Uh, It'll bring you to your knees. And then I just tell him, I said, you know what? I said, this is the grace. It reminds me so much of the grace of God because the, the greatest grace is demonstrated in my own life. I said, I, I see grace upon grace in the people that I get to pastor. And I see his grace and just people coming and sitting in the seats and the way people give. And I'm thankful for all that. I'm thankful for the way that he's changing all of our lives, opening us up to the gospel and, you know, all that. I'm thankful for that. But I said, you know what? The real work is me. God is working in me. And that's just his grace. And for that, I'm thankful. Um, and so, you know, what are you who and what are you thankful for uh, as you pray? Think about that and, and let it drive you. I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful for um, the opportunity that God has given me, the call to to pastor and for you submitting yourself to to me as your as your pastor. Um, what is Paul thankful for? What is he praying about? He's specifically thanking God for the Colossians and for their tangible expressions of faith, hope and love, faith, hope and love. Let's read these verses and, and, and pay attention to those three words, um, starting in verse three. again, he says, we thank God and we pray for you. Verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I'm going to stop right there. Faith, hope and love. Perhaps you've 
paying attention to these words before. We see them in Paul's writing almost in every epistle that he writes. Not only him, but we see them in the writer of the the book of Hebrews. We see them in, in Peter's epistle as he expounds about life and the essentials of the Christian faith. So these these are special words. I would tell you faith, hope and love. Here's a, a few examples of how they're used. These are from Paul's writing. First Thessalonians one, chapter one, verse three. We give thanks. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And then lastly, Galatians chapter five, verse five and six. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I think there's three, uh, two key points as you look at these words, faith, hope, love, and how Paul uses them, not just here in Colossians, but as he uses them, wherever he uses them, but also the the writer to the Hebrews um, and Peter as well. When Peter combines these three, I'll call them Christian spiritual elements, what he's doing for us is he's just describing basic, genuine Christianity. When you see faith operating in somebody, when you see love beyond just being kind and nice, when you see a hope, like the, the Bible, the, 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 the way the Bible describes hope, and I'm going to explain that to you in a second, then you know it's, this isn't naturally in this person. It's, it's a gift of God. And that really is what Paul is saying. I see genuine expressions of Christianity in you, Colossians, based upon how Epaphras has come back and explained your conversion and how you're dealing with the message of the gospel lived out in your life. And I am positive that God is doing a work in you. That's what he's saying. And I would tell you those this that can only happen by the, the great grace of God. The Bible says that faith is a gift. Salvation comes by faith through grace. It's not in and of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Salvation and the faith that we have is the gift of God. Love is command, the greatest commandment. But more than that, love really is. um, It's that it's that 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 thing describing actually who God is. God is love. And more than that. When we really have and understand the love of God, it's manifested through us as a as a fruit of the spirit of God in us. So Paul is saying none of these things are natural to us. And and therefore, the qualities are evidences of the work of the grace of God in your lives. And he's saying that's happening in the the church at Colossae. I think the order is significant. You know, he, he says I keep saying faith, hope and and Love, really what he says here is faith, love and hope, your faith in Christ, your love for other people and hope. And I think the order is is he's giving this order on purpose right here. And I think he's what he's meaning there is his emphasis is on hope that we have greater faith in Jesus. We have greater love for other people. That comes from hope. Hope is the anchor. The emphasis is on hope because it reminds us, it reminds them 
that salvation, which believers already enjoy in Christ, has a future aspect. It's not just here and now, although hope is for here and now. There is a hope that's yet to come and it comes through the resurrection. When Jesus comes and resurrects us and then ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And with that, that as a backdrop, I want to spend the rest of our time really talking, un unpacking really the, 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 the connection between the gospel and these three Christian genuine elements of, of faith, hope, and love. And I think we can learn something from them. And I think the main, uh, the main gist of this passage, verses three through eight, comes in the latter half of verse five and, and verse six. And I want us to say this together. Latter, latter half of verse five and going on in verse six. Let's say this together. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let's stop right there. Where does hope come from? Thank you, Herbert. Hope springs eternal, he says. But really, where does it come from? I think as we follow Paul's train of thought, he's telling us where hope comes from. And it's not a secret. He's saying that hope comes from the gospel. Hope comes from the word of the truth, the gospel. We just have to figure out how we strain it out of that. Paul says, listen to this train of thought. He says, you heard the word of the truth, the gospel, that introduced you to the hope laid up for you in heaven. That hope awakened in you faith in Christ and love for others. And that is why Paul had reason to thank God for for them, for all that was going on in their lives. And there's a train of thought here. And of course, I've given it to you backwards. He starts with I'm thanking God. Then he says faith, love, hope because of the truth of, laid up for you in heaven. I'm, I'm giving it to you backwards. I'm saying that the hope itself comes from the word of the truth, the gospel. So look, let's look at these in turn. What's the gospel? I, we, I come up here every week and I talk about the gospel. And perhaps you've gotten it, but perhaps you're still trying to figure it out. And that's OK. Because I would tell you, we will never completely figure out the depths of the good news of Jesus and its implications for us. As Christians, I think we will always, until Jesus comes back, be unfolding this and and learning its ramifications in our life. Paul here doesn't define the gospel. He actually doesn't even tell us what it is. He he hides it within three phrases. In verse five, he says the gospel is the word of the truth. The in, in, in verse six, he says it's bearing fruit and it's growing. And in the latter half of verse six, he says the gospel is the grace of God in truth. And so in its simplest form, it just means good news. The gospel is good news. It's this beautiful story of God's redemption of sinners like you and I through the perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. That's the gospel in simple terms. But it's, it's so much more. You know, the gospel is in many ways today. It's, it's just a catch word. It's almost Christian ease. And in this room right here, there's there's two extremes. There's those of you who absolutely don't know what it is. There's those of you who some of you probably in the middle who get it. And then some of you who think you know what it is, but maybe don't. OK. And of course, I'm trying to bring us all into a, a, a correct understanding as the Bible would give it to us. And I think Paul here depicts here in verse six, the gospel is primarily a message. OK, so that's what he's conveying here. The reason the, the, 
the, the people at Colossae had hope, had more faith in Jesus and had love for each other was because of the word of the truth, the gospel. And what he's conveying to us is the gospel is not just some ethereal, uh, make you feel good kind of word. It's a message. It's divine truth. It's proclamation. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the, 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 the very power of God for salvation. That means it's what, change, it's what brings us into God, but it's also the power to help us mature in God. The, the gospel is endless. So Paul says, you heard the word of the truth, the gospel, and that introduced you to the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what's this hope laid up for us in heaven? It sounds pretty simple. Um, most would simply respond like this. When a Christian dies, we get to go to heaven if we trust in Jesus. Right. I mean, we teach our kids that. Right. We want our kids to know if you trust in Jesus, when you die, the hope that you have in this life is that there's more to come. And I would tell you that's absolutely right. That's nothing wrong with that. But caveat. There's a little bit more. Right. And so if we stay, if we if we give that definition um, and stay with that childlike idea of just believe in Jesus. And the hope is I, have, I get to go to heaven. You don't exhaust the full measure of what the Bible tells us in regard to hope. So what does the Bible mean about hope? I think very simply, the Bible says hope is an expectation of certain future. It's an expectation of a certain future. It's a combination of my desire, but also my expectation. My desire and my expectation It's something I want, but it's also something that I expect to get. And a couple of examples, a farmer sows seed, expecting, hoping to produce a harvest. A businessman invests his money and his resources, hoping, but also expecting to get a return on his income. You know, there's there's so much in our lives as just regular people, but also as believers that craves for a sense of hope. We look for it in everything. We read stories. We go to movies. Um, we talk to people. Uh, our whole lives really are in many ways centered around craving a sense of hope. We want to just draw out hope, not just for this life, but there's something beyond here that I can look forward to. Um, if you think about whatever your favorite story or your favorite movie is, perhaps you're drawn to that, to look at it again, to read it again, because of a sense of hope that it gives you as you expose yourself to it. At least that's, that's why I read books more than once. Uh, I think what a good screenwriter or an author does is create in us a sense of hope. And if the movie ends like we think it's going to end, it's, you know, we call it a good movie. But really, if that movie does something extra and it gives us a sense of hope at the end, we call it a great movie. And I think that's what, you know, that's what Disney does very well. Have you noticed? They're starting to do that very well. Over the Christmas holidays, we were, uh, we were watching a movie called Happy Feet. <clears throat> Happy Feet has, you know, the voices of Elijah Wood. Um, Robin Williams, you know, he's the penguin tap dancing. And so I, I, I don't want to take a lot of time and re rehearse the story for you. But 
we were watching this movie. I had never seen Happy Feet before. It actually won an, uh, an Oscar in 2006 for Best Animated Picture. So it's got to be kind of good, right? So uh, the movie is, is, the setting is the Antarctic. So think iceberg and like thousands of penguins. And we're about 45 minutes, an hour into the movie, and I'm kind of... Kind of looking at it, kind of not, because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like to watch a movie without doing something else. I'm, I'm ADHD. Um, so my family got annoyed with me because I kept, I said, I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, I thought this was a good movie. I said, all this movie is, is an iceberg and penguins. I said, there's got to be more in this movie than just an iceberg and penguins. Of course, the story is there's a special penguin. Penguins mate by singing. This, this special penguin was born. His dad dropped him. So he, he, he hatched and he got dropped. And he came out not being able to sing, but he could tap dance. And so, you know, his thing was he could tap dance. And it was just eccentric, but it was cute. And he goes through life being ostracized because he's not a singing penguin. He's a tap dancing penguin. And of course, there's there's lows and highs in the story. Um, he ostracizes himself. He gets uh, he leaves the island uh, of the, the Antarctic where they are. He gets captured and he goes to penguin heaven. Guess what penguin heaven is? It's an Australian zoo. I thought that was funny. OK, but the, the, the end of the story is. Um, He's trying to communicate with with humans in this zoo. And he found out that if he tap danced, he could communicate to a little girl. And this little girl got her mom and her mom got other adults. And this phenomenon happened that this penguin who was eccentric was tap dancing. And they they somehow were figuring out he was trying to communicate with them. What was he trying to do? He wasn't trying to do anything but tap dance. He was like, they're looking at me. I'm going to tap dance. But us humans were thinking there's more to it than that. And uh, they end up putting a tracker on him. He goes back to his his Antarctic home. And the, the moral of the story really is they were the fishermen in the Antarctic were depleting this colony of, of, of penguins of their of their fish. Uh, the scientists come out. They see all these. They see their, you know, the eccentric penguin and all these thousands of penguins. And they start tap dancing because this is what the, this guy got him to tap dance. I'm not telling the story very well, but. This is this is what there's a sense of hope in this for me because I I didn't get it. But at the end of it, I'm thinking this is crazy. This penguin who was just tap dancing somehow communicated to these humans that they the fishermen were depleting their supply of fish. And. And from that. He just saved their 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 flock of, of penguins. But more than that. What it said to me was God is God is able to speak through an animal, even unbeknownst to what he's doing to to bring about their salvation. There's there's a message of salvation in this story. At least I got that. And then I saw the beauty. I I was complaining. This is a penguin in the Antarctic. And all they're doing is just like it's just like ice and penguins. It's like but but then I saw it's like even in the midst of ice and penguins, there's the beauty of God's creation. And I said, God, I said, I believe you. That's 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 a great story. All right. I could I could have told that better. I should have told about Frozen. Frozen is like Zoe's favorite story. All right. So you get the you get the point. Let's connect these two thoughts. The gospel, you know, the gospel is a story and the author, the creator himself intends. He design he he puts in the story of the gospel, this sense of hope for us. 
And you've heard these elements before. It's creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. Those aren't, you aren't unfamiliar with those. But let's rehearse them anyway. The creation, the story of creation is we aren't here by accident. We aren't here by accident. God is the creator who spoke the world into existence. And he created the world out of the overflow of of who he is. His design for his world was that it would be a very good place that all of creation would be in harmony with each other. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he put human beings who he created on the sixth day bearing his image to be its vice regents, to be in charge of it. That's the story of creation. The next essential element of the gospel story is is the fall, the story of the fall. And it says that through the disobedience of people like you and I, sin comes into the world. And as a result of sin, we're cursed. The earth is cursed. Our economy is cursed. There's nothing that's not affected by sin. Sin ushers in death and its effects are widespread, so widespread that there's nothing in our lives, there's nothing in our world or in God's good creation that's not tainted by the, the, the original disobedience of, of man. Now, of course, the, the hope in the story comes with reconciliation. God sends his son to live a perfect life be in our world, die on a cross in our place for our sin. But I'm going to pause there because I don't have time to unpack the, just the, the prevalence of sin in our world. But I would tell you the hope in the gospel story doesn't even it won't register to you until you understand what the problem is. If you don't understand how bad the problem is, God creating a great, a, a, a good place, a great world, putting us in the midst of it and then sin destroying all of that. If you don't understand how bad the bad is, you won't appreciate how good the hope that he brings to the to the situation is. And that really is our, our problem. We don't understand how, what the problem really is. And this, this, is, this is how we think. If you hope, if you hope that, if your hope is in the world not being that bad and you not being that bad, then what you'll think is we're just not all that bad. And as long as we can get a little bit better, things are going to be okay. If you if you if you think the problem is socioeconomic equality, that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, then your focus will be how do I take from the rich, give to the poor and bring us all into this this middle ground. And your whole focus will be on fixing the problem of 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 taking those two very extreme socioeconomic conditions and making it also that. Everyone has a, a piece of the pie. And if you think the problem is. I'm, I'm not bad. The world's not bad. We just need to all get along. Then then you will spend all your resources just trying to make people all get along. But I would tell you 
And this is, uh, this is the but in this. If the problem is that everything in God's good creation has been deformed and defaced by sin, then you have to look for some other profound solution. And you realize that that solution cannot come from those of us who are the creators of the problem. And so if we are the problem, then we can't also be the solution to the problem. The problem has to be solved from outside of us. You know, a lot of us don't radically hope in Jesus because we don't think that we're that bad. We think that we. okay, so I got a little bit wrong with me and there's a little bit wrong with the world. And if if we just try to all do a little bit better, then we'll be okay. That's really what most of us think in regards to the world. We're all getting along just fine. We're all doing good things. And the world is just a little messed up. And so the reason I talk about sin, you you guys, I get up here. I talk about the gospel and sin every week. And one of the reasons why I do that is because my biggest problem and your biggest problem is the sin in our lives and how that drives us to do the things that we do. And so I want us to feel and see the depth of the problem in our lives and therefore the problem in our world. I want you to sense the depth of the brokenness in all of creation wrought by the fall. And I want you to know that unless your heart cries out for a solution that comes from outside of you, outside of us, even outside of our world, then, then there is no hope for us. We have to have Hope that comes from outside of us. And so where does that hope come from? It comes from the truth of the gospel. It comes from Jesus. And that really is the hope in this gospel story. The hope is in reconciliation and consummation. So Jesus comes in the midst of our alienation from God. Jesus comes from heaven to earth. He lives a perfect life. He invades our world, walks our roads, wears our clothes, eats our food. He becomes One of us, and he does it unlike any of us can. He does it perfectly. And by God's plan, God causes him to go and die on a cross in our place for our sin. Jesus is our hope. Jesus dies on the cross, closing the gap that exists between a holy, perfect God and a sinful, rebellious people like you and I. And Jesus does that so that he can deal with the problem of sin in our world and sin in our heart. And that allows us to be reconciled to God. We go from enemies to friends. And I would tell you this, this, this is where the hope is. But this is not where it ends. This is not where the hope ends. Jesus comes again. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come again in full orb glory. And he's going to, um, he's going to fully deal with the brokenness in our hearts. He's going to deal with the brokenness in our world. He's going to usher in the the recreation of the new heaven and and new earth. He's going to completely right everything that's wrong. So the problem of sin is taken away by Jesus. And so this really is the gospel story. The hope that the gospel holds out for us is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. You and I can be redeemed from sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus. What we hope for is the return of Jesus so that he finally eradicates sin and evil and restores us to the very good of original creation, a new heaven and a new earth, just like it was in the beginning. The word of the truth, the gospel, 
is that it claims this story and that it introduces us to this hope. And I would tell you, this really is hope. This is hope, not in this life or what we can do to fix the problem, because that's human betterment. That's just us white knuckling it out, trying to come up with a solution based upon our own our own intellect. Hope that we can trust is hope in God that comes through Jesus. So why is this important? I think every other worldview that we listen to, that we adhere to ourselves, says that we can be a part of the solution. It says that human betterment is the way. And there's a religious version of this called moralism and legalism. Okay, do this, don't do that. And if you obey God perfectly, then all will be okay with you and all will be okay with the world. And then there's an irreligious version of this. And this irreligious version says, center people in the good liberal democratic ideas and then the world will be a better place. And I would tell you, both of these have at its roots. Pull up our bootstraps. Let's hunker down and get it better. And I would I would tell you that's human betterment at its at its best. The hope offered in the gospel is resolutely different because it comes from outside of us. And this is an important point. The gospel tells you that you are utterly helpless to save yourself. You are in the midst of an ocean. You can't swim. And unless someone comes with a boat, a life preserver, an oar sticks it out to you and helps you get in the boat to come and save you, you're going to die a fitful death. Okay. And so the person that comes is Jesus. He comes in the midst of your ocean to rescue you, to save you. Only in the gospel do we see that the help comes from outside of the system. It comes from outside of us. It comes from outside of our world. We need someone to come from outside to step into our situation, to step into our world and to redeem it. And that someone is Jesus. And so this is what the word of the truth, the gospel proclaims to us. God created the world. Sin corrupted the world. Jesus comes to redeem the world and reconcile it back to God. And Jesus ultimately is the agent to restore all of creation. And so that really is our hope, folks. Our hope comes to us in the form of the person and the work of Jesus. And it's our hope only because it's completely outside of us. And so here's the big if. If this is true, if everything that I've said in regards to the truth of uh, the word of the truth, the gospel, fueling hope in us, giving us faith to believe in Christ and love for each other, then it creates more faith simply by believing the gospel. That, that is the truth. And I, I know I didn't give you a, I didn't give you three points. Do this, do this, this. But it, it's really it, it really comes down to believing the gospel, believing Believing this proclamation, this message of truth that God gives us, that's power to, of God to save us and to mature us. Faith in Jesus because he really is the source of our truth and it generates love for others because when I understand the depth of the gospel, I understand that everybody in God's great world was created in his image, in his likeness. We're all image bearers. And so it, it forces me to to love other people. So they say this with me. It's going to be on the screen. The word of the truth, the gospel introduces me to the hope laid up for me in heaven and awakens in me faith in Jesus and love for others. Y'all don't have that. All right. Listen to me. The word of the truth, the word of the truth, the gospel introduces me to the hope laid up for me in heaven 
and awakens in me faith in Jesus and love for others. I'm going to say it one more time so it sinks in. The word of the truth, the gospel, introduces me to the hope laid up for me in heaven and awakens in me faith in Jesus and love for others. Thank you, Herbert. And so here's some application. Two points of application. First, I mean, ask yourself, I mean, do you know the gospel? It's, it's just as simple as that. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate it? And I think the, the issue here for us is, is simply this. Not just that some of you know it. Some of you think you know it. We want to be in the middle. But more than that, I want you to be a proclaimer of the gospel. I want you to be a proclaimer of the gospel, not just for those people out there The you need to you need to be able to articulate the gospel for yourself. The chief person that needs to hear the gospel in the depth of what it is. Is you, your ears, your mind, your heart worked out through you so that you will have more faith to believe in Jesus and so that you will be propelled to love others more. Because it's the truth of the word of the gospel that causes us to have more hope, hope not only for this life, but hope laid up for us in heaven. And that hope fuels us to love, to to have more faith in Jesus and to love others more. That that really that's the flow of the gospel for you. And so when you're able to proclaim the gospel, not simply to those out there, but to yourself. It changes you. Honestly, this is how change happens. The truth of the word, the word of the truth, the gospel. The second application would simply be this. I think I really do. I think this text explains for us how we become stronger in faith and love. And I, I would I would look out and, and, and I know some of you very well. And I would think that most of us want to grow in our, our Christian maturity. We want to grow in faith, but we also want to be. We want to demonstrate more love to those that are in our immediate vicinity, but also to, to mankind. Not just to be kind, but just a love that comes from a depth of who God is working out through us. I think many of us, we see the gap. We see the gap of what the Bible says, who we are and what we should do. And, and this huge gap between who we think we are and how we live. And I think this word here helps us to close the gap. I really, really do think it helps, helps us to close the gap. The way you grow in these areas is, is not by trying harder. And all of us, we, we, want, we try. We try hard, don't we? We, try, we read the Bible and it's in us to do what it says. But it's not in trying. It's in being. Be before do. That's what Paul is saying through all, all of Colossians. Be before do. Indicative what he's indicating that you are comes before what he's telling you to do. And throughout the rest of this book, he's going to keep emphasizing that. Be before do. Indicative comes before imperative. And in this regard, he's saying the way you grow is hoping more deeply. It's believing more deeply because believing more deeply in the gospel causes you to have more faith in Jesus because he is. What's the hope laid up for us in heaven? Where is Jesus? He's he's in the third. He's in the third heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the father. The word of the truth, the gospel. Points us to Jesus. That's what it does. And so this. 
That really is why I say everything comes back to the gospel. Everything comes back to the gospel. When you hear the gospel, it makes you more hopeful. And so proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself ultimately makes you more hopeful, more hopeful in what's to come, more hopeful for this life that I can do it, more hopeful uh, for the life to come, more hopeful in Jesus, my faith in him. And it works out in us really as as being more loving toward other people. I think that's the flow of the gospel. And so this week, try this. Believe the gospel this way. Read, open your Bible, read it up and believe what it says about God. God is creator. He's holy. He's perfect. And then believe what the Bible says about you. And this is what the Bible says about you. It says you're simultaneously, if you're Christian, justified, but I'm still a sinner. That's what the Bible says about you. Theological terms, but that's what it says. It says that in Christ, you are forgiven. You're a child of God. You're a son. You're beloved. But the fact is, we all still sin. Okay, and then you got to not just believe God, what the Bible says about God, believe what it says about you, but you got to believe what it says about Jesus. Because the Bible says Jesus comes into our mess and the mess of our lives, the mess of our world, and he comes and he redeems us. He reconciles us and he makes all things right, not just for this world, but for the world to come. What I'm hoping, what I'm longing for as we shape the transit is that the word of the truth, the gospel would stir up the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. And that way it would awaken in us faith in Jesus, in his person and his work, and that it would awaken in us love for each other and for those in the world. Let's pray. Lord, help us to get this. Help us to get it, Lord. The word of the truth, the gospel. The gospel introduces us to hope laid up for us in heaven. It points us to Jesus and it awakens in me faith in Jesus and love for other people. Help us, Holy Spirit, to get this, what the words are saying, but more so, Lord God, help those words to filter through our mind, invade it, and come to our heart and change it. Lord, we all want to, we're all pressing to to be better people. And sometimes we try to force it to happen And I'm impressed with what Paul is just, he's saying right at the front in his letter to the Colossians. He's like, I'm impressed with you. Based upon Epaphras' note to me, you got it. You understand the gospel. You understand it's it's not about what you do. It's about who you are in Christ. You're in union with him. It's not about making it happen. Really, it's about believing, believing what you heard. So God... Fill our minds with the good news of Jesus. Help us to be stirred by your word, that we will be impassioned to know, to understand. Help us to believe the gospel. And then God, do one thing more. Let it it do its work. Cause it to awaken us to hope that points us to Jesus. And that makes us more lovely toward other people. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.